I would like to uh, read a passage of scripture to you out of the Gospels. I don't want you to turn to the passage, but just to listen. And I want to ask the men to distribute the elements, if you will, now, while you're listening to this passage. It may be a little bit uh, distracting, but try to try to ignore the uh, men as they pass up and down the aisles and distribute the elements, and try to think your way through this story. Imagine yourself in the story. Uh, imagination is a good thing. It's the image-making factor in our mind that uh, has to do with our ability to picture things mentally. So I want you to picture this, uh, this incident. It took place right after the resurrection when there was a great deal of confusion. The three women, Mary, Magdalene, and Joanna, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, had come to the tomb and had discovered that Jesus was missing, had reported that to the disciples who said, nonsense, as the New American Standard uh, translates, simply is not so. And then we pick up the story as two of the disciples were traveling to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were conversing with each other about all the things which had taken place. And it came about that while they were conversing and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him the things about Jesus, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. And beside this, it is the third day since these things happened. And also some women among us amazed us when they told us that they didn't find his body. They came saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. And they approached the village where they were going, and he, and, he, and he acted as though he would go farther. And they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. And he went in to stay with them. And it came about that when he had reclined at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and began to give it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? Can you imagine what it must have been like to walk along that road with the Lord and have him expound upon the scriptures and explain to these disciples all that, it, that had uh, been, been prophesied, predicted by the prophets about the Messiah, and how it all fell into place with his coming and with his death? 
And the interesting thing about this passage, I think, is that uh, is this little statement. It was while he was breaking the bread that they recognized who he was. I'm sure their eyes were open so that they had some spiritual insight as well. But I think what called their attention to him and who he was was that the fact that as he broke the bread, they saw his hands. And they saw the nail prints. And they realized that he was the risen Lord. Now, what I would like you to do as we share together in the bread and in the cup this morning is to imagine that the Lord himself is serving us and that you envision his hands. You can begin to sense something of the, of the magnitude of, of the cost to Jesus. He purchased our salvation at the cost of his own life. Let's take the bread together. Lord, we thank you for your coming. We thank you for giving up your life for us. We thank you for giving us salvation as a gift, something to be received. We thank you that you live today to be our Lord, to continue to to give us what we need for life. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you turn, please, to the 20th chapter of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20. Uh, it probably is just the way my mind works, but I like to keep things very simple. It's uh, easy to get lost in, the, in what seems to be very complex uh, theology and lose the simplicity of the gospel. And that's particularly true when it comes to Christian service, because the Lord wants to make it very easy for us. He wants to be engaged in ministry in such a way that that we will vitally, deeply affect and change the lives of others. One of my great delights is the part that I play with Idaho Mountain Ministries in working with pastors. And I just love to sit down across the table from some of these uh, men from rural communities, backcountry communities, and talk to them about the ministry, because for so many of them it's a mystery. Uh, Most of them have not been to seminary or to Bible school. I know of one man who is a rancher in the Indian Valley area who became concerned about that community. They didn't have a church. They didn't have a pastor, so he just began to preach. He's had no training at all. And it's such a delight to sit down with these men and and women and help them to think their way through the biblical principles that have to do with ministry. Now, what I would like to do this morning is talk about a principle that is so simple anyone can get it. I got it. You can get it. It's in this uh, section of chapter 20 where Paul delivers his last will and testament to the elders at Ephesus. Howard Hendricks is fond of saying, last words are lasting words. And these were Paul's last words to the elders, and they, they, were, they are lasting words. It's Paul's legacy. It's, what's he, it's what he hands on to the leadership there to tell them how to do the job well. The, the, the chapter begins with a, a condensed account of Paul's two-year ministry in Greece and Macedonia. And the thing that's remarkable about it all is the geographical spread of the gospel 
It was evangelical sprawl. An area about the size of the uh, Pacific Northwest had been evangelized through Paul planting churches over a 25-year period of time. I've been in the ministry almost 25 years. I just wish that I could say that I've had the kind of effect on the Pacific Northwest that Paul had on, on that area of the ancient world. The other interesting thing about it is just a blizzard of names and places in these opening verses or a couple of names that show up, a man by the name of Gaius, whom we know as a nobleman, another man who, whose name is Secundus, who was a slave. The uh, Romans often numbered off their slaves by Latin ordinals, Primus, Secundus, Tertius. And uh, Secundus, which means second, uh, his name occurs in this list of names, which indicates how well the gospel had penetrated through different layers of society. Not only the upper class, but the lower class had been touched. Oh, and how I hunger for that kind of influence on my time. And I know you do too, as well. And, and this passage tells us how. If you want to know how to have an effect upon your contemporaries, if, if you want to know how to not waste your time and influence others toward godliness, this is how. Now, we don't have time to take the entire message, but I want to talk about just a couple of paragraphs, if we have time for those, at least one, maybe two. Verse 18, or 17, excuse me, of chapter 20. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. Miletus was the seaport of the city of Ephesus, just a few miles to the south. Ephesus was in Asia Minor, ancient Asia Minor. Today, we call it Turkey. He called the elders from this church to him, and when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And there you have it. In that one paragraph, you have the two elements of a ministry that will profoundly influence others. Now, when we talk about ministry, we're not talking about the clergy. We're talking about all of us. Lay people, as well as professionals. Paul says, this is the way you serve the Lord. If you want to receive our Lord's well done when you stand before him, this is the way to do it. You may never be written up in a Christian magazine. You may never be known. You, you, may be, you, you just may labor on in obscurity for the rest of your life. But if you want the Lord to say well done, this is the way you do it. And the ministry, according to Paul, revolves around two ideas that are spelled out in the main verbs in this, in this first paragraph. Paul says, I was with you, that's number one. And number two, I did not shrink from teaching you and declaring to you everything that's profitable. He, he spent his time with people and he taught them the word. Those are the two elements of a, minute, of a meaningful ministry. He befriended people and he imparted the truth to them. That's the name of the game. Those are the basics. Those are the fundamentals. Any coach will tell you that, that you've you got to get the fundamentals down. You have all the 
talent and skill and razzle-dazzle in the world, but if, if you don't execute properly, you don't have the fundamentals, then you've got a losing deal. So, so what Paul is doing is going back to the basics. He says, do you want to have an impact upon others? Do you want to influence others deeply? Do you want to serve the Lord successfully? This is how you do it. You befriend people, and you impart the truth to them. That's easy. Anybody can do that. I can do that. You could do that. What's so hard about that? We've all got friends. And we can befriend others. And we all know a little bit of truth, maybe just a, just a tiny bit, a modicum, but we all know something of the truth. Now, I want to back into this thing and talk first about imparting truth. And then I want to talk about making friends. Paul piles up words. He uses one synonym after another to underscore the idea that we just have to get the truth of God across to people. People out there don't know. They don't understand. They're living in a vacuum. They, they don't know up from down. They don't have any anchors. They don't have any parameters. There are no reference points. They don't know what to believe. Paul says, we, somehow we've got to get the truth to them. He uses a number of different words. Uh, Bruce Walkie told us last week that synonyms are the windows into the soul of a man. If you want to know how he really thinks, then look at the way he uses words. And he, he, he just stacks one word upon another. Verse 20, I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you publicly and from house to house, in both formal gatherings and in informal gatherings, sitting across the table, sharing a cup of coffee with a man or a woman, he imparted truth, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance. And then down in verse 24, testifying solemnly. Verse 27, I didn't shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Down in verse uh, 31, I did not cease to admonish everyone with tears. It's as though he takes up the teaching task and he just turns it around every which way and looks at all the facets of it. And he says, this is what you, you declare it, you testify to it, you admonish people with it, you witness to it. You've got to get it out there because people don't have it. They don't know the truth. Just as in Amos Day, there's a, there's a famine of hearing of the Word of God. People don't know. They don't know. A number of years ago, I was doing a seminar for the navigators in a city in the Midwest. and It was for men, essentially businessmen, who worked uh, uh, in downtown offices and they would gather at noon and I was teaching them how to how to study the scriptures. And a lot of them came without Bibles because they came straight from their office and you can't study the Bible without a Bible. So the first day they were there and we were looking at an Old Testament passage and hardly any of them had Old Testaments. I said, we got to find some Bibles. And I looked around and there wasn't one on the stand. And, and I said, are there any in the pew racks? And no, there weren't any Bibles in the pew racks. And so I said, well, let's go find some. They must have put them up. And I found the secretary and she was in her office, and I said, you got any Bibles around here? And she says, well, let's see. We used to have Bibles here. Uh, let's see. What do we do with those Bibles? And she rounds up the uh, custodian, and he comes up, uh, and he says, yeah, I think I know where the Bibles are. And he goes downstairs in the basement, way back in the back of a furnace room in a bunch of boxes. They found the Bibles, and they brought them up, and we blew the dust off of them and, and used them. And it was kind of funny, but at the same time, it was, it was very sad, very sad. And unfortunately, that's what's happening all across the world. People are not hearing the word taught. We've got to teach them. Now, every one of us knows something. You know, you listen to Chuck Swindoll on the radio, and so do I. And, and uh, you go to, you're involved in growth groups and the women's studies and the men's study, and you come here on Sunday morning and you're in Sunday school classes. All of us have some truth. 
Maybe you don't have much. Maybe you haven't been a Christian very long, but everybody knows something. Start teaching people what you know. The more you teach, the more you learn. (laughs) It's really true. That's the biblical theory of knowledge. The more you give, the more you get. Jesus said that. As you give it out, you begin to receive more. You know, we're very fortunate here. We have teaching coming at us from all angles. People out there don't. If you've come to this church from another church to be taught, please don't stay here very long. (laughs) I mean it. Go back and teach those people. Take the truth that you're learning here and go there and teach them. Impart to them the truth you don't, uh, that, that they don't have. Now, that's the first pillar, instruction. Teach, impart the truth. Anybody can do that. You don't have to have a theological degree to teach other people what you know. Don't be intimidated by your lack of knowledge. Start teaching people what you do have. That's number one. Number two is make friends. Make friends. That's what Paul means when he says in verse 18, I was with you the whole time. Spent time with you. Identified with you. Just as the Lord did. You know, the Lord spent a great deal of time just sort of hanging around with the disciples. Going fishing with them. Walking along the Sea of Galilee. Helping them mend their nets. Going to their weddings. Going to their parties. He was just with them. He was a friend. Seemed like a huge waste of time. He had three and a half years to get the job uh, done, and he had this infinite job to do to save the whole world, and he just seemed to be spending a lot of time making friends with people. But that's, that's the second crucial element in any ministry. Impart the truth and make friends with people. Now, Paul elaborates a bit on that friendship and what it entails, basically what it costs. And I think what he's telling us is that good ministries don't just happen. They're very expensive. They will cost a great deal. That's what Paul means by serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. It entails humility, empathy with people, and adversity. And and if we think that we're going to escape humiliation and tears and, and, and adversity just because we're involved in serving the Lord, we've got another thing coming. That, that's part and parcel of it. First, he says it involves humility. I, I, am imp- I, I really think we're way too impressed with ourselves. We really are very proud people, all of us. As C.S. Lewis points out, if you think you're humble, that's a sure sign that you're proud. (laughs) Like the man who wrote the book, Humility and How I Achieved It. Shows up in, in, in subtle ways. Our tendency to dominate social situations. We talk too much, you know, we really do. And, and that's a manifestation of pride. We fill the air with our words. We want to tell our tales. We want our anecdotes. We don't listen to people. Uh, it shows up in our tendency to gravitate toward uh, the bright people, the, the people that impress us, the people that are fun to be with. You know, who do we move toward in a social setting? Paul said to associate with the lowly. He said, don't. Don't overestimate yourself, he said. Don't be proud and haughty in your own mind. 
associate with the lowly. Don't be a snob. When, when you walk into a social situation, don't look for the person who will minister to you. Go to minister. Take the lowest place. It shows up, I think, in our tendency to, to cover up and to pretend that we're something more than we are. That's a malady that particularly affects uh, leaders and teachers, I think. We don't want people to see that we struggle, that we're having problems with our children, or we're struggling in our marriage, or we're not doing well emotionally. So we're very self-contained instead of being transparent and, and open with people. And the problem is, you know, we're dying inside just like everybody else is. But we can't talk about it. So the problems are exacerbated. We have no one to help us, no one to support us and encourage us in these times of need. We just think we just got to be honest and open and transparent. the, The evangelical church has been taught for years that leaders don't fold. Leaders don't have problems. Leaders don't struggle emotionally. They don't have marital problems. And so you you live in two worlds. At home, you live one kind of life, and out in, in, in the rest of the world, you live another kind of life. And nobody can live with that kind of tension. It just destroys you. And I think that's why so many so many leaders collapse. God never expected us to live that way. None of us are perfect. We need to admit it. Let's be honest and, and open with, with one another. Who are we kidding anyway? We, we know what we're like. It turns up, pride turns up, I think, in our unwillingness to, to do the small thing, the insignificant thing, the, to not be recognized or known or particularly appreciated or applauded for what we do. We, we like to be up front. We like for people to see us. We like to be, to be recognized instead of taking the, the lowly place, the lower seat. Remember the incident when Jesus was invited to a dinner party and I think he must have watched with a great deal of amusement. <clears throat> People scrambled over each other for the best seats. They, they all wanted to get near the head table so they could sit and sit next to the host. And Jesus was asked to say a few words, and he stood, and uh, as he so often, uh, as he so often did, he uh, outraged his audience. He said to them, "When when you're invited to a a party like this, don't don't sit at the head table. Somebody might come along and say, you don't belong up here, go sit down there, and it'll be very embarrassing. When you walk into a, a dinner party like this, take the lowest seat, and then the host may ask you to, to come up and sit at the head table. That's all right. If he asks you, go up there, but don't lobby for it. Don't push yourself to get up front. Don't Don't... Use politics to get into a position of leadership. Now, if you want to be greatly used by God, that's that's the way to do it. As Peter puts it, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you. Don't despise the small thing, the little thing, the insignificant thing. Start there and be faithful there and God may well exalt you to a place of prominence and greatness. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be great for the sake of the kingdom of God. Don't seek it for yourself. Jeremiah said, Jeremiah 45, do you, do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. Don't do that, he said. But it's all right to seek prominence and greatness for the sake of the kingdom of God. But the way to get there 
All of Scripture tells us is to take the lower place. Just be willing to serve. Right where you are, where nobody sees you. And in due time, if it's his will, he'll exalt you. When the exiles came back from uh, Babylon, they began to rebuild the temple. It was in ruins, had been in ruins for 50 to 60 years, and uh, they began to rebuild. And you know the story. They were thwarted in the project for a while. Finally, they got the thing uh, up, and they got the walls built. And it was oh, it was a sad little building compared to the Solomonic Temple. It was, Solomon's Temple was one of the wonders of the ancient world, architecturally. Beautiful thing. Here was this little dinky thing that they had built. And, and those that were old enough to remember the former temple began to weep. And Haggai said, don't despise small beginnings because God's going to fill his house with glory. And that's the little temple that Herod embellished and the temple to which Jesus came. And he filled that house with glory. So never despise small beginnings. Just be willing to start there. And God will fill your house with glory. I'll, I'll never forget, I, I was, when I was working with students, I invited a, uh, a well-known Christian leader to come and speak in a fraternity house. He's still fairly well-known well today. And uh, Stanford students are very blasé. They wouldn't walk across the street to hear Buckminster Fuller speak. And uh, about four or five people showed up for this meeting. He wouldn't talk to him. He sat in the corner and pouted. I could not believe it. He would not talk to him. He wasn't willing to take the, the lower place. You've got to be willing to start in some insignificant way. You never know what's going to happen. Carol and I have been listening to some taste by Oswald Sanders. And he tells the story of a, a meeting uh, uh, which he, he, was a, he was a speaker there. And he, it, was a, it was a rainstorm and he went... And uh, one family showed up, the only family that, it was the family he was staying with, as a matter of fact. <laughs> Out of that meeting came three of the central key leaders of Overseas Missionary Fellowship, the old China Inland Mission. Three came out of that. Don't despise small beginnings. Start where you are. You never know what God is going to do. You never know. Um... There was, there was a time in Jesus' life when he felt the need to go across the Sea of Galilee to uh, the region of the Gerasenes, the Decapolis. These were Greek cities that were largely ignored by the Jews of that day, although there were Jews living there in vast numbers. Jesus said to the disciples, uh, let's go to the other side and evangelize over there. They haven't heard, so he gets in this little boat. They were all the way across. The storm occurred, you know, that's described in the Gospels. They get to the other side. The demons, two of them actually, or the demon-possessed men, come out of the tombs, assault them. Jesus casts out the demons into the pigs. And uh, the man says, after he has been restored spiritually and mentally, he says, let me go with you. Jesus says, no, uh, you go back and tell people what great things God has done for you. And Jesus got back in his boat, and they rowed all the way across to the other side, and that was the last time Jesus came to that area until he was on his way back to Jerusalem to die. And he came through Perea, which is that area on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And he discovered thousands of disciples over there. How'd they get there? This man went back and he told people what great things God had done for him. Jesus didn't hold one meeting in Perea, as far as we know. 
He contacted one person, a demon-possessed man, the most unlikely person in the world, and that's the man that God used to evangelize this vast geographical area. Don't despise small beginnings. Be willing to take the humble place. God hasn't forgotten you. He sees you. He knows what you're doing. Joseph spent 13 years in prison. And one day, he was exalted to the, to the number two position in the land of Egypt. He became the prime minister. God didn't forget him, and he won't forget you. Now, that's the first characteristic, I think, of, uh, of friendship is humility. Pride is a terribly unattractive trait. Makes us untouchable, unapproachable, puts people off. Humility is what draws others into a friendship. Secondly, with tears, with empathy. Tears aren't uh, considered manly today, but uh, they are. As a matter of fact, they're godly. Jesus wept. We ought to do more of it ourselves. We are so coldly objective, so propositional. We give ourselves to understand the truth. We're like uh, Sergeant Friday. We just want to know the facts, and we want to understand the Scripture. And and I, that's good. We need to understand the Word, but I, we also need to learn to be more understanding. As Joe Aldrich puts it, people don't care what you know until they know that you care. That's what opens people up so they'll listen to you when they know that you care. I uh, I had a funeral here a few months back. It was really hard. Infants' funerals are very difficult for me. Some funerals are a celebration. But there's something about an infant's funeral that's very, very difficult. And to compound the difficulty, they had an open casket. And the little child was, it was uh, the little body was just about that long. And uh, in the, before the service started, the baby's brother was standing in front of the casket looking at the little body. And he was, oh, tears were just running down his face. So I, you know, I thought I ought to be some help. That's what I was supposed to do. That, that's what I'm there for, is to help. So I went around and, and put my hand on his shoulder and I said, well, your little sister is with Jesus. That's good theology, you know. That's great theology. That's true. He said, I I don't care if my little sister is with Jesus. I don't want my sister with Jesus. I want her here. I want to play with her. And all I could do is just put my arm around him and weep with him. As George MacDonald said, sometimes tears are the only uh, cure for weeping. People have to know that we care. I think there are three things that make us care. One is uh, just being around people. You can't be around people without sensing after a while how broken and crushed their lives are and how much they're hurting. If we really listen to people and we show concern for them, after a while they begin to open up. And I don't know anybody, frankly, who isn't hurting in some area of their life. And when you're around people, you really begin to, to care for them. The other thing that does it for you is being around the Lord. Worship makes you care for people because you begin to see people as God sees them. And there's some uh, almost unconscious process at work by which the truth becomes real in our hearts. We begin to look at people through the Lord's eyes and have compassion for them the way he, he had compassion. And I think the third way to learn to care is to go through pain yourself. 
There's, there's nothing like, like uh, personal tragedy and suffering to, to soften your heart and, and tenderize you. It's all for a purpose. We, don't, we often don't understand why these things happen to us. But they happen to us for a reason. And so God can make us more caring, more tender people. That's what Paul says, 1 Corinthians. God, blessed is the God, 2 Corinthians. Blessed is God of all comfort, who comforts us in our distress. So we can comfort those that are in distress. And, and the underlying assumption there is, is that uh, you can't really comfort anybody until you've been comforted. And the reason you're comforted is because you've been in pain. I, I have to confess, I used to be uh, secretly very disdainful of, of parents who uh, couldn't control their teenage kids. Uh, I, I had teenage kids, too. And they were great. They were no trouble at all. I thought I was a super parent. I, you know, I, you just don't have prodigals. It isn't done. You just line them up and tell them what to do. And after all, the Bible says so. You train them the way they should go, and, and they'll, they'll do what they're supposed to do. I got fooled. <laughs> Carolyn and I became what John White calls parents in pain. I thought I was going to die, and then I was afraid I wasn't going to die. I've never been so miserable <laughs> in my whole life. I've never wept so much over, over anything or anyone in my whole life. I just came apart at the seams. I couldn't believe it. This was happening to me. But I'll tell you what, I never sit across from a man anymore <laughs> when he tells me about his pain that I don't weep with him. Those are hard times, but God softens you. And he tenderizes you and he makes you more compassionate. Through those hard, hard trials. Ray Steadman used to quote a little poem that goes, When God wants to drill and skill a man, when, when he wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world will be amazed, how he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally selects, how he hammers him and hurts him, and with mighty blows converts him into trial lumps of clay which only God can understand. How he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes. How he uses whom he chooses and with every purpose fuses him. By every act induces, induces him to try his, his power out. God knows what he's about. Uh, Oswald Sanders in one of those tapes talks about F.B. Myers. Some of you know who he is. F.B. Myers, excuse me. He's one of my favorite devotional commentators. Inherited a lot of my father's books from F.B. Meyer. Great expositor. Tender-hearted man. Has a deep and profound knowledge of God. He has been probably more help to me devotionally in terms of understanding the scriptures than anyone else. He was a contemporary of G. Campbell Morgan. Oswald Chambers was talking to uh, Dr. Meyer one night. And uh, as he put it, uh, it was the hour when men began to open up their hearts to one another. And Dr. Meyer said, you know, Oswald, he said, I, I am welcome in any home in the United States or Canada or England or Europe. The only place I'm not at home is my own home. God can't use us greatly until he hurts us greatly. Pain is part of the process. And then there's a, there's a third element here. It's adversity. 
Humility, empathy, and adversity. I don't think it really gets much better. I, I don't know why, uh, why we keep thinking that things are going to take a turn for the better. They never do. Uh, all of you know uh, Murphy's Law. If anything could go wrong, it probably will. You may not have heard O'Toole's commentary on Murphy's Law. <laughs> O'Toole's commentary is that Murphy was an optimist. <laughs> and I, I am convinced that uh, the longer we go, the tougher things may become for us. It's not always true, but very often it is. Certainly was true of Abraham. At the end of his life, when he was exhibit A of faith, when he had proved himself as a as a godly man, he, he went through that hard thing of having to put to death his own son. God didn't exact the price of his son, but he had to be willing to put death all of his ambitions and dreams. That boy represented everything in the world to Abraham that was worthwhile, and God said put him to death and he was willing to do it hardest thing Abraham did came right at the end of his life but it was all part of the process see God longs more than anything else to see us put to work and he knows that we can do it you and I can do it that's what we're here for it's the heart of our life and uh, we can influence others for Christ we can help them to grow and and mature in Christ as we teach them what we know, as we impart to them the knowledge about God, and as we make friends out of them for Christ's sake. It's going to cost us. It's not going to be easy. It's going to cost in terms of sacrificial love and, and time, and it's going to exact a toll from you as a person. But in the end, we're going to stand before the Lord, and he's going to say, you did well, you did well. You've served me well. None of us may ever be heard of in terms of Christendom at large. They may never know you. You never may never be recognized by this church. You, never, you may never become a leader. But if you're serving faithfully where you are, God is going to exalt you in terms of, of your relationship to him and your sense of well-being. And he may in time make something great of you. But even if he doesn't, he's going to use you right where you are to change the lives of others. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, forgive us for uh, our unwillingness to make ourselves available. Forgive us for our lack of understanding of what you have for us. We, we thank you that, you're, that you are so patient with us and that that it's the intent of your heart to get to us the truth that we need to know and to supply us with the resources that make it possible for us to have a deep and lasting effect upon others. That's, the, that's what we yearn for, Lord. We don't want to waste our time. We don't want to spend our time doing the trivial things that, that in the end will not matter. We want to be useful. Help us to make friends, Lord. Help us to be willing to be transparent and honest and, and to seek the, the lowly and the lonely and the lost and not worry about ourselves and the affirmation we can receive from others. 
and the kind of positive feedback that we long for from others but ultimately comes only from you. And we pray that you'd make us men and women of the word, that we'd take it seriously, that we'd get to know it and impart it to others. Use us, Lord, for Christ's sake. And we ask in his name. Amen.